Welcome to Politics in Question, a show about why our political institutions are failing and ideas for fixing them. On this week's episode, we are courting a debate over the role of our third branch as the long arm of the law reached too far beyond its robes. Are unelected judges legislating from the bench too much? Are we all looking to the courts too much to break our deadlocked politics? Or just as an end run around politics as usual? And what, if anything, should we do about it? In short, do we have too much judicial review? I'm Lee Drutman. Uh, I'll be hosting this episode, and I'm a senior fellow in the political reform program at New America. I'm Julia Azari. I'm an associate professor of political science at Marquette University and a political science blogger on mischiefsoffaction.com. And I'm James Walner, a senior fellow at the R Street Institute and lecturer in the School of Public Affairs at American University. All right. So we'll start off uh, with a brief introduction to the subject. What is judicial review? I mean, very briefly, it's it's the idea that courts have the power to invalidate what the legislature and the executive does. So there are uh, lots of famous examples of this. Our abortion policy has basically been dictated by the, the courts. Roe v. Wade, uh, gay marriage, basically decided by the courts. 2000 election, basically decided by the courts. So, like, what? Why do we? Why do we care about this topic, Julia? I mean, I, lots of different reasons. I think there's there's a possibility the courts will be quite heavily involved in the in the impeachment issue, but also there's many of the kinds of issues that you just brought up that are um, going up before the court. There's a big debate about the role of the court in um, in gerrymandering issues. So basically, all of these. One of the, the recurring themes on this show is is a debate about the rules of democracy, and the courts are in a really powerful position to be arbiters about those very rules. But I would just say that calls into question the whole thing, because if we have someone who is an arbiter of the rules of democracy, that makes them a ruler, mm. right? That makes them a ruler. And in our system, we don't have rulers, whether you wear robes or not. All right. So I think we know what position... James is going to take so so the the question for debate is uh, do we rely, rely on the courts to decide too much so we'll take a quick roll call vote uh, too much just the right amount not enough not sure where are we James too 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 much too much too much way way too much so like 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 eleven on a ten point scale. Like in Spinal Tap, where you yeah yeah it goes you see that knob. Thanks for clarifying my goes reference. Goes to eleven. Um. All right. Excellent. I I think I I lean I guess I lean toward too much, but maybe for different reasons. In the sense that I think that a lot of I think that activists have moved toward a position of seeking redress in the courts in a way that that isn't that doesn't lead to productive ways of having conflict over controversial issues. And we can talk a little bit about the background of that. But I'm going to take my usual wishy-washy begging the question stance. Okay. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I, I tend to think we decide too much stuff by courts, too. So I guess we're sort of all in agreement here. But for but but I want to hear I, I want to hear why and 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 what we what we do about it. So I mean, I, I guess the, the logical place to start off, which is like, why do we have so much judicial review. Uh, like, where does this come from? James, you want to give us some 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 history? 
Sure. There's a, a great book I would recommend to our listeners. It's called The People Themselves. It was written by Larry Kramer. It came out in 2006. It's a fabulous book, and it's a fabulous deep dive into judicial review, the role of the courts, and how they that role has changed over the years. But if you look at the debates of the federal convention, the judiciary is not something that gets a lot of attention. The whole notion of judicial review it's not that the, the framers thought that it shouldn't be there or that they thought that it should be there. It's that they didn't really fully think about it and talk about it that much. And judicial review has had a longstanding um, kind of common law heritage as well, but it wasn't fully theorized. And so when we have the, the Constitution come into place, when you have then um, the, uh, the court starting to decide a lot of issues, a lot of cases that are, they're being confronted with, they're making it up as they go along. And you have things like Marbury v. Madison, which was the first case with John Marshall that where you see the first big case, I should say, uh, where they invalidated a, a law ostensibly to because it didn't comply with the Constitution. And then it was off to the races. But the people themselves, uh, Larry Kramer, doesn't make this point. He says, actually, Marbury v. Madison was a little bit different. The judicial review in the early days only pertained to the sphere in which the courts had the authority to operate because there's still this thing called the separation of powers. And if you put the courts on top and you say that these nine people or eight people or however many people at various points in time we've had in our court, if you let them be the ones who decide what the Constitution means, separation of powers by definition no longer exist, right? And so for the longest time, you had three branches vying for power with the courts being one of them. And then you had the people as the ultimate ultimate arbiter. And that certainly changed, though, at the end, with the advent of mass political parties, with the advent of really intense political issues. Uh, Julia referenced the, the public choice law movement of the, in the mid 20th century. But a lot of the stuff in the turn of the 20th century, I think, really set the stage for where we are today. Yeah. So I think where, where I come in is to explain a little bit of um, what we've what we've described here is 20th century judicial judicial activism. And I think what what's important here is the linkage between um, various kinds of social movements and this conceptualization on the left um, among activists that the courts are a kind of venue for social progress. And I think so to, to put this first and to situate this in the theoretical realm, I would say that a lot of these debates come down to a question about what does the Constitution mean in a changing, dynamic, modern society? So... There, this comes down to things like the um, the notion of a right to privacy that became the basis for Griswold v. Connecticut decision that establishes this right for uh, for people to prescribe contraception, and then that becomes the basis for Roe v. Wade and the 1973 um, abortion case, the landmark abortion case. So that's one set of theories about that. Another has to do with civil rights and the question about what does the equal protection mean. Arguably, this is still these sorts of ideas are still the the basis for um, things like we saw the Obergefell decision in 2015 that um, made same-sex marriage the law of the land in every state, this idea of dignity. So all these things that are not explicitly laid out in the Constitution, but being applied to a new context. Um, and I think on the one hand, to defend judicial review a little bit and specifically to defend this brand of judicial activism, I think there's something to be said for having having a mechanism by which the constitution can be a living document i guess i'm putting a lot of political cards on the table here um but you know the degree to which this can be a founding document that has that has foundational meaning that has old meaning but that also can 
allow that older meaning to evolve into the questions of a modern society. Can I can I jump in real quick? Absolutely. Um, I think that's an important point. And as as a conservative, one of the things that's often overlooked in the caricature of conservatism these days is that it entails a constant engagement with the tradition to decide what do you keep, what do you throw out, and what do you reform. And that also goes for more formal um, documents and more formal arrangements like the Constitution. And we have a we have a um, an amendment process in Article 5 that's laid out. We could have a con-con, a constitutional convention as well. You can have other things that happen. This is what Kramer details in his books. Uh, you, you can have the people take to the streets. They can engage in popular constitutionalism and, and signal to their representatives and the, and the judiciary and the presidency what they want to have happen. So there's other ways that the court, uh, that the constitution can evolve with society. And I agree with you that, that it should evolve. I mean, things should evolve, right? But it's a question of how do we determine whether or not it evolves and where do we determine? And if we let it just be the courts, then it upends the entire structure of the system. So, but yeah. I, Well, I'm just going to ask a question because I, I do want to make sure that we give uh, judicial review it's, its due course. Like it, The argument for judicial review, I think, would go something like this. The, 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 the Constitution gives all kinds of, of rights that are essentially Bill of Rights protection for individual liberties, protections for minorities, and it's the courts who really defend those rights in a way that the legislatures don't, right? Like that, if things were left up to a popular referendum, you know, we we might get rid of of freedom of speech or freedom of religion, and that those are. But yet the yet the framers thought those were fundamental rights. But that that that, that we ought to make sure are protected from the ordinary uh, sort of demo, potential for demagoguery or or popular majorities at a given time. So that that courts play an important role there. Right? But this is key. I a hundred percent agree that the majority can if not properly checked, can do very bad things. It can rule. We don't want the minority ruling. We don't want anybody ruling. And so in America, and the framers are very concerned about this, and Madison doesn't talk about judicial review. He talks about the extended republic in Federalist 10. He talks about, in Federalist 51, interlocking checks and balances and bicameralism. And the judiciary doesn't play a role in that either. And so what prevents people from coming in in, in a legislature, for instance, and, and thwarting and imposing um, their view on a minority over a sustained period of time is the structure of the of the system, not the judiciary. The judiciary does have a role to play, and judicial review is important in certain instances, but it, the way we think about it now and this is very much aligned with this idea of judicial supremacy, and that, I think, is not consistent with the structure of American politics, of, of the notion of checks and balances. If, if, the, if the Supreme Court is supreme, then what's then you're not you don't have three coordinate branches anymore. I, I see what you're saying. No, I think that that's a that's a definite concern. And for the most part, I think I substantively agree with you, but I still want to argue with you about amendments, um, because it seems to me that the the. The actual history of the thing is that we get these amendments through, and because the political process is what it is, um, we used to get amendments through, I should say, um, occasionally. When that happens, it's not obvious what that means or to what it ap applies. And so how does that how does that happen? Who decides what the Constitution means? And that's kind of 
you know, that is the role of a constitutional court. It doesn't have to be the exclusive role of a constitutional court. But it seems to me like that's a lot of what happened in practice around the 14th Amendment, right? It offers equal protection under the law. And so then we have all these questions about what what does that mean in practice? Can separate be equal? What What kinds of things are happening in the states in the criminal justice procedure that might be interfering with inter- equal protection under the law? What kinds of, you know, what kinds of groups are protected under equal protection under the law? And once the amendment is written and ratified, that that amendment process is no longer, it, right, is no longer active in deciding those questions. You need some other entity to make those decisions. And I agree with you that it's better for that to happen in some other part of the political process. But it's not ridiculous to imagine that a court has this role. I do like, I wanted to respond to something that James said a little bit earlier, because I do like the idea that across different ideologies, we can all be reconciling tradition and progress and maybe have different different balances or different different things we'd want to pull out of tradition versus progress. But I like the idea that liberal and conservative and different types of ideologies don't have to be wed to an extreme point on that on that uh, continuum. And I want to just underscore one thing that Julia just said about how do you decide. It's not necessarily that the courts are playing the role, I think, that's the problem today. It seems to me that the problem is when you have other people in Congress or the White House or around the country who say, well, the courts ruled, I don't like what they said, they're the last word. That's the problem. Like when you have, it's, it, it cuts short a debate over precisely what you're talking about, what, the, what that means and what the Constitution means. And you have co-equal branches or coordinate branches. You have people who say, well, now we can't say anything or do anything because the court ruled. And that's not the way I think our system was set up. So, so like, how should, how should the courts work in a, in a functioning democracy? Like, what, what would be the proper limits for what, what courts should be, should be doing and what should be left to the legislatures? How do you, how do you find that balance? Julia, you were kind of getting getting at that yeah i was and i don't i mean i don't know that i have a really excuse me a really clear line about that it seems to me that the way that this the way it's supposed to work is the notion that the courts are kind of in the constitutional sense they're drawing the boundaries between executive and legislative um core functions or purviews which i know and i know james is going to say but the executive and legislative uh, executive branch and legislature are supposed to work together, which I uh, also agree with. But also, in practically, I'm answering your theoretical question in practice. Because, well, that's good because theory is just is just right. for us to debate. Right, but, but practice. Now that's the real world. That's the real world. I don't know. So very Heideggerian of you. Mm. Oh man. So the. The boundary between federal and state seems to me like this is an important area of court involvement in the United States and the degree to which specifically that states have been have exercised their freedom and their their power in ways that are at odds with the values of the Constitution, I think is appropriate. So like in a perfect world. I think we would have a constitutional court that was really steeped in the notion of the values of the Constitution that was intellectually honest and not predictably partisan and we can kind of let that sit for a moment as we think about intellectually honest um but and what does that even mean yeah i don't know (laughs) yeah i think with the the federalism angle is interesting because in the in the convention you do see a lot of debate over the fact that this the federal court should be supreme 
vis-a-vis the state courts. So I think that is a little bit better theorized on this front. But with regard to the separation of powers and adjudicating uh, boundaries and adjudicating um, you know, the idea that you, the Congress, said this was okay, and now we say it's not, and now the Congress says, well, we don't agree with you, but we, what, woe, woe unto us. We can't change it. The only way to change it is to change the court. Um, I, I'm not sure that uh, is 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 correct. And I think uh, to get back to your question, how do you define the limits? Well, it's it's on it's not on the court, right? I, I don't think the court wants to be in this position, right? I don't think the court doesn't have a lot of legitimacy. It doesn't have any real power. It can't legitimize its outcomes, right? It can't it can't enforce its outcomes. It needs the Congress and the presidency to do that and the people to ultimately agree. And so I think you have to have other branches that are willing to push back when they think the courts overstepped its bounds. So, so And what? they have to also have other branches who are not aggressively pushing issues to the court to say, solve this problem. So what would it look like for other branches to fight back? And and why don't they do it? Is it, I mean, usually, you know, as political scientists, we think that if the world is a certain way, it's either because there's a coordination problem or, or there's, or there are, there are strong incentives for, for things to be the way they are, that there's some sort of equilibrium. But it's not the, it's not that the, the, they have to fight back against the court, right? So, so, so take Chuck Schumer. There's a question on this, there's a controversy in recent years over the census. And it was like, well, what, the president wanted to have the census workers ask, are you a citizen? And, the, and Chuck Schumer and, uh, and congressional Democrats didn't like that. They thought that was a bad idea. So what does Chuck Schumer do? He ha- comes out and he said, calls on the Supreme Court to say that that can't be done. And it's like, well, Chuck Schumer, you're the Senate minority leader. Why don't you try to use your power, cut off funding for it or pass a law or to do something else? Paul Ryan, you have this issue of DACA deferred um, for, on, uh, for, Action, for kids brought here um, when they're young, uh, by their parents from other countries. And you have a situation where there's a bill in Congress and it's in the House and it's in committee and you have moderate Republicans who want to get a discharge petition. And Paul Ryan tells the moderate Republicans, don't, don't, what, don't move. Don't push this because the courts are going to solve this problem. So I don't see it necessarily as the courts trying to be greedy and, and exercise all this power. I see it as the Congress. I see it as the president who says, ah, I can't do X because the Supreme Court won't let me. It's the, it's their problem. Well, so so that's I mean, that, that's exactly the question I was asking, which is like, why? Why does maybe phrase it in a different way? Why does so much stuff get get left to the courts? And your answer is because politicians actually want to defer it to the court so they don't take responsibility for it? Or is it because it gives it gives it confers a legitimacy on their position? Julia? So I, I want to actually go with a slightly in a slightly different direction okay. than this. And I think I'm going to eventually stumble onto sort of an answer to this, but I'm not sure. Um, That's so, what this is all about. Stumbling. So, yeah. Stumbling. Uh, politics in question. Politics and stumbling. Yes. Um, so, first of all, yeah, I mean, I think that the way to think about courts is to think about them as one more weapon in the arsenal of political conflict as opposed to uh, as opposed to an institution that's separate somehow from political conflict. And I think there there's a there's a disconnect between the kind of like grade school civics version of what the courts should do and what the courts really do. And this goes back to an epi- a previous episode that we've recorded about political conflict, right? I think we need to change our culture around conflict. So part of it, I think, is that there is a sense that, well, 
courts are out of the fray of politics. And so they're going to make decisions that that don't reflect that. And first of all, right now, as I as I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of partisanship and courts are as predictably partisan um, as the other branches of government, but also that at least the Supreme Court is also that um, that that's historically been true, that courts have tended to follow public opinion and follow changing political context, not lead. And we have this kind of misguided notion based on a telling of a certain kind of 20th century history that the courts are actually this bulwark against, um, as, as Lee was saying earlier, against the, this overreaching majority. So that's part one. Um Part two is, is to answer your question about how would how would other political actors push back? Um, and it seems to me that the courts have asked other actors, specifically Congress, to do this, or Congress and the states to do this in different contexts over the last decade or so. And one is in the decision about the Voting Rights Act, the Shelby v. Holder decision. And in that decision, the the court invalidated the formula by which um, states and localities are subject to to Justice Department review of any changes in their electoral procedures, right? So it's it didn't say the Voting Rights Act was fundamentally unconstitutional, just that it was unconstitutional for the um, for these for Congress not to have updated this formula about who is covered by the act. And they asked that Congress should go about should do that should update the formula so that the the voting rights act can go back into effect and we can have federal review over changes in voting laws um at the state and local level and obviously congress has not done that um the other example is i mentioned before gerrymandering where the supreme court basically said we're kicking this back to the states and states should figure out what their what their uh, standards are for redistricting so in a couple of cases, the court is, has, for whatever reason, has suggested that it doesn't want to be part of those decisions. And that can be, we could read that cynically and say, the court isn't interested in protecting the actors that are pushing for those decisions. Um, and obviously, these have partisan implications. But also, I think it's useful to say, all right, these are some questions where people need to decide and where, where the Constitution doesn't give necessarily clear guidance about who is supposed to who is supposed to vote or how we're supposed to protect that that needs to be something that we have an argument about politically and we figure out how we how we're going to enact this shared value of allowing people access to to the ballot and access to to fair protection in the electoral process well let, let me i want to want to push on i think what you said it, it is an important point that for a long time we've had this idea that the courts are out of politics and somehow that the ordinary politics is you know rough and tumble perhaps you know dirty but the th there's some like you know platonic truth about how things should work and and we have these these people in robes, they're not elected, they're appointed, they're supposed to be the brightest, most brilliant people in the country, they're not supposed to be partisan, they're supposed to be umpires, they're only calling balls and strikes. And that's that's been like the fiction of the courts for a long time. I think we're starting to, to see some of that fiction peel away. So what happens when that as that fiction starts to peel away? Do, do the courts lose that status, and then then they then they no longer we, we no longer go to them, or do they become even more important because then we can't settle everything anything in normal politics, and elections are just about electing judges who will serve 
for 30, 40, 50 years. I think well, the latter. It would be my... That's certainly um, where we are now. Yeah. I mean, yeah. look at Senate Republicans. They're saying, vote for us so we can nominate or we can confirm judges who will act. I mean, that's the basis of their entire kind of re-election bid right now, it seems to me. I think that's right. And I think, you know, I was thinking about uh, about various recent cases, but Citizens United is one that, that comes up that I think... So Citizens United, maybe in Bush v. Gore, seem to be the, the cases where the court has gotten a reputation for being partisan, and specifically as lost just legitimate. Just Citizens United, briefly. Yeah, thank in, you. In, Sorry. Do you, um, you want to explain it? It's, it, it feels to me like you want to explain well, it. Well, I mean, I just I just feel like, uh, well, I, I guess most people know Citizens United, but just I mean, it's the it. decision that paved the way for corporations to spend unlimited uh, money on electoral-related expenses, although not direct contributions to candidates. Yes, thank you. Yeah, so Citizens United, this big campaign finance decision, and then Bush v. Gore, which ultimately decided the rules for the Florida recount in 2000 and thus the election itself. Um, and didn't set precedent. Right. Didn't they set say, precedent. This case will not be right. a precedent for the future. Right. Um, we're just doing this thing. But those are the two cases that if the left ha- had been enamored of the court's capacity to protect rights, then the left, I think, became less enamored with the with the courts, um, with the Supreme Court in, that, in those two cases. And I think that particularly Citizens United has you know, gets at some values that are where the country is not completely, you know, completely anti-corporations and, and spending, but where there's, I think, a demonstrable concern among people about um, about campaign donations in a way that's really out of step with what the court has yeah, decided. Yeah, I'd say 80% of people think there should be less but, money and more and, regulation. But this gets to the key dysfunction in our politics today. The court makes a decision. There's a lot of people who disagree with the decision. What's the response? Well, we have to control the courts. Yeah, exactly. That's, That's what the I was problem, trying to get at. Yep. Right? I mean, you have, you know, Dred Scott, the, the court oversteps. So you have a lot of people and it spurs political action and political engagement and it spurs the other branches to reassert themselves and it ends in, you know, eventually the civil war and other things, but the courts aren't now we see the court is is the be all and end all. If the if Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks and the civil rights movement thought about politics the way we do today, they would have stopped after Brown v. Board of Education. What's the point? We got the court. They would have stopped after Eisenhower is is descending in the National Guard. They got the executive. They don't need anything else, but they didn't stop. And you had another decade, another decade of of political action both inside and outside of Congress to eventually change that to change the law and to change people's minds in this country. The courts can't do it all. So so and, it's the the problem that the courts, I mean, in the case of Citizens United, in the case of Bush v. Gore, I mean, those are those are partisan disputes. Like the 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 the, the money and politics issue, Democrats want want to regulate it, Republicans don't. And that the that parties want the courts to settle the issues that they don't think that they can settle politically because they think they're on the losing side or they don't or they don't really have a legitimacy to to make their case unless the courts I want to jump that. I want to jump in on on this too to just to balance it out which is that you know 15 years ago Republicans were running against the courts and Bush was running around talking about unelected judges because of the decision in um starting in Massachusetts to make same-sex marriage legal. So there's definitely also this conservative critique. And I think that's right. I think it's, you know, it, it's there isn't a lot of principle around 
opposition opposition to the courts. It's sort of you know decisions that um, that have been made that we don't like. Though it's very but, faint these days. It seems like yeah. no everyone seems to be a judicial supremacist these days. I mean, you don't see Democrats challenging the courts from their power centers elsewhere in government. They just they're waiting to control the courts. So I want to I want to jump back into the civil rights example though, and I want to recommend something for our listeners to read if they want to to get more deeply steeped in this, which is um, a book called Civil Rights and the Making of the American State by Megan Ming Francis. And she makes a really interesting argument that starts way before Brown v. v. Board, starts in the early 20th century, and then leads up to that and explains why was the why was the civil rights movement and specifically the NAACP pursuing a court-based strategy? And Part of her argument, an important part of her argument, is that they had tried, they kind of tried whatever they thought might work. So they try to lobby the executive branch and they make some progress with with Warren G. Harding, with Woodrow Wilson to make statements against lynching. They make some progress. So the House passes an anti-lynching bill, but the Senate doesn't. And they realize, her argument is they realize that the political process cannot produce what they want because there's this very strong veto point in the Southern Democrats in the Senate and that the executive executive branch isn't going to do exactly what they want. And they have she has sort of different arguments for why that might be. But that, I think, is is kind of critical to reach a little bit more deeply into that history, both to understand the path dependence of activists pursuing policy in the courts, but also to think about pursuing policy in the courts, not just so Lee had sort of said, well, it's issues where they think they're on the losing side. And this is maybe a little asterisk to that, which is issues where they think that there's a very specific kind of, of veto player in the political system that will prevent them from making progress on the issue in in the regular political process. I'm not sure I fully agree with that because one of the key things about Dr. King's civil rights movement and his strategy was that he understood that the way that you ultimately solve the problem, and it's never fully been solved and it never, you know, we always making progress towards a more perfect union, is that it has to have engagement in the South. You have to confront Southerners with the reality and the bigotry of, the, of that reality. And then you have to persuade them. The court is not a venue for persuasion. The executive is not a venue of persuasion. Congress is a venue of persuasion. Politics is ultimately about persuasion. And so we have this notion of court says, well, we're going to evoke some sort of higher authority and you're just going to be wrong. But the pro- it doesn't matter. The court can rule all it wants. It, it's not going to get the same outcome. The civil rights movement ultimately prevails, I think, because of the political movement, the political side of that movement with, with King. And he was very much in, in, in tension with the NAACP on a lot of stuff and the older, the old guard. Um, and, he was, and it succeeded because how that then raised the issue and created new conflict and brought more people in and it turned people onto this issue who hadn't seen it before on television. And then you have mass protest and then you bring in other people. And then all of a sudden in the 60s, you can do something you couldn't do in the late 50s. And it gets on, that's how you make change in this country. And if you try to impose it from on high, right, like some sort of Olympian God, you're not going to get very far. I think the, 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 the marriage cases of in recent years are different, but I think they're playing catch up. I think maybe the Congress wasn't there, but I think it seems to me most Americans were already there. But the question is, do we have the court making a decision that most Americans disagree with, maybe Citizens United, I don't know. And if they do, 
then they're probably not going to prevail very long. And a normal, the only thing that allows them to prevail is if we say, well, they're supreme and we're powerless now. Well, probably the Heller gun control case as well. Uh, That's a good point. And 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 in you know another contested issue, right? I mean, so. But these are all issues that are precisely that divide the parties and that therefore the parties keep them off the agenda, which means that they are precluded from using the kind of tools we have uh, to, to challenge the courts, to reign in the courts and to then do other things. So would we care? Would we, would be we having this debate? Would we be so worried about judicial supremacy if if Congress was taking up more issues and debating more issues? Is it is it just a function of our other institutions not being able to resolve issues? Or is there something ab- about about the courts in the United States? I don't think it's intrinsic to the courts. I mean, I think we're all judicial supremacists now. I think that's the problem. But how did we become judicial supremacists? I think the way we think about politics has shifted. And, it, and over the time, we've got this idea that, we ha- that, that Madison was wrong, that we have two highly cohesive parties, that the only way to get to the promised land is to control the factory and to get all the seats and to control the political means of production, which means you have to win elections, which means you keep issues that divide your party off the agenda. And then you punt them to the executive branch, you punt them to the courts, and you then run. And then, But when you win, there's another election. There's always another election just around the corner. And we're a lot more divided than we think we are. But we can't decide these contested issues. So we, we look to the courts and we simultaneously say, please solve this problem. And then we can also play victim when it goes the way we don't like it. We can say, well, I, I don't like that, but that's the court's call. And I, what am I going to do? Is that I right? Mean, I think that, I, yeah, I think to some degree that's a fair characterization. But I also think that sort of pick up the the idea with campaign finance jurisprudence here for a second. Um, that that tension actually precedes the polarization that we have now, right? That predates it. That goes back to the 70s where you have, on the one hand, you have Congress actually passing. So you have a Congress in the 70s that has an agenda and people that want to do it, and they do it. And they pass, um, in 1971 and then in 1974, they pass campaign finance legislation, which the Supreme Court then, I wouldn't say guts necessarily, but alters significantly um, by bringing in the idea that limiting expenditures, limiting how you spend money or how much you can spend violates the First Amendment. And that principle really limits campaign finance, which is, as Lee pointed out, and I think Lee is much better versed on the public opinion of this issue, that the public is is really concerned about this question. And this is one of, like this is a question whenever I do public events, everybody who shows up to those kinds of things is really exercised about. I'm not sure, you know, right or wrong, um, whether that's a, an appropriate target. There's a real distinction between thinking about campaign spending as a First Amendment issue and thinking about campaign spending as a corruption issue. And the Supreme Court has been, you know, there are partisan divides within the court, but they've been very consistent in deciding on that on that First Amendment kind of question. And I think that introduces a different that introduces a different element, which is the, how we think about the Constitution in this country and how we think about, as as Lee said earlier, the, the Bill of Rights as this kind of limiting factor on what we can do. And what maybe has happened, I also think and now I'm just agreeing with everybody. So at, at any rate, that's frustrating. But come on in, um, the water's great. Terrible. So but James said earlier that we're all judicial supremacists, and I think that's kind of true on this issue because the court has been so consistent and so at odds with 
with public opinion and with the things that, you know, in these moments where Congress actually gets something done, they'll pass a bill. The court has had a had a vision of the First Amendment that's very different from that. Yeah, and, and when the court, when you concede that the court has the authority to speak as the final word on what the Constitution means and who has what rights, it goes both ways. It goes both ways. And I think that's that's one problematic for people on the right and the left. And number two, it precludes it. It almost it retards change. It makes it harder. And Julia, you had a great point when you opened at the beginning of the show about how we have this living document. I would disagree on the living document side, but how it changes and it needs a way to 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 change with the times. And I do agree with that. But the but the way we think about it now, how do you change? politics now, because if you're a judicial supremacist, well, you have to win the White House, you have to be the president, you have to nominate a, someone to be on the court, you, that person has to get confirmed, then you have to have a case or a controversy that filters up through the system that arrives there, and then they have to then rule, and then you have to have all their colleagues that agree with them. That's the way, that's our politics now, on very controversial issues. It's not Congress passing another law. It's not the president doing whatever. It's basically everything is geared towards capturing this body because this body rules. And that is contrary to American politics because in America, no one rules. The minority so, isn't supposed to rule and the majority isn't I want to jump rule. in with one last thing before we, we move on. Um, which is that I, I think I've talked a lot about the expectations on the left about what the court can do, but we can't ignore also as we're thinking about people using the court as a political tool that there's this whole conservative legal movement that's deliberately you know brought up um, like deliberately created this huge I want to say bench, which is obviously a terrible pun. Um, we're all of, here for the terrible judges. puns. Thank you, Lee. I knew yeah. I could count on you. Yes. The Federalist um, Society. Yeah, right. Exactly. An so, associated movement. Yeah. I'll shout out groups. Amanda Hollis-Bruski's book about oh, yeah. um, about the, the Federalist Society. And, yes. you know, there's lots of good work on the uh, – and Steve Tellis's work on the conservative legal movement. Yes. So I think it's, it's clear that – you know, people in of a lot of different ideological stripes see judicial politics as as a productive venue for their conflict in terms of productive in terms of winning their side. And I think Lee wants us to move on. Yeah, let's uh, let's move on to the what, what the what the hell do we do about this? Oh boy, part. Um, so J James and I uh, wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post last year when the before when the the the, the Kennedy retired, um, and we said, "Don't don't fill the seat," uh, because the then, worst thing you could do for the country. Then then the court will be deadlocked <laughs> at, at an even number of justices, and then they won't be able to to rule on a bunch of stuff. Uh, and what do you think about that, Julia? What do I think about that? Um, I mean, sure, why not? I that that ship has sailed. I thought I read that op-ed. I thought I want to podcast with those guys. Um, we, our our prehistory. We haven't really uh, addressed the accountability issue very much, but I, I feel like there is probably a way to, if not have judges have traditional electoral accountability, to have a little bit more variety in which judges are making the, the highest level of decisions um, and not have people serve on the court for 40 or 50 years. That seems very at odds with what most people understand as a, you know, a democratic institution. So term limits? Oh, man. No political scientist likes to talk about term limits. Well, term limits for unelected offices oh, yeah. probably makes sense, right? I mean, for for elected offices, it's called elections. Right. And there's support on both the left and the right and opposition on the left and the right to judicial term limits. But there's a lot of stuff, one, that we have on the books now 
that we can do. And then there's a lot of stuff that can also be done in addition to that. But Congress can start to flex its muscles, right? They can rescind jurisdiction. Jurisdiction stripping is something that used to happen on a regular basis. Um, maybe not on really big issues, but they can take away stuff outside of the original jurisdiction. They can they can structure the court how they want. They can they can change the way the court makes decisions. So they can pass a law to say, look, if you want to grant cert to a case, why not? You have to have eight justices. I think it's like four now. You have to have eight. And if the you know, that, that would cut down on a lot of these like five, four type decisions. There's a lot of unanimity at the court. They do The court does a lot of stuff and the judiciary is a very important part of our government. But it would get rid of these kind of flashpoint things and would kick it. And I think the point of our uh, op-ed, Lee, was to push things back into the back into the, the political sphere and to force people to deal with them. And that would certainly do that. You could all take away their building. You know, Congress could well, yeah. take. Oh, well, then they just meet in the basement of Congress yeah, like you they could, used to. Maybe, or you don't even let them in there. I don't know. I mean, you so know, they could my hang, point out, is, hang out at the Pete's Coffee Shop. <laughs> you can't. The Congress can't pretend to be a victim of the courts when it has all of this power, right? So that's. I guess that's my point. Yeah. They can control the size of the court. They can control the. I mean, they can control the structure of the federal court. They can control the jurisdiction of the court, but outside of original jurisdiction, they can control the procedures by which the court decides what cases to take, they can do, they can take away its building. They can do all sorts of things, but they choose not to. They instead say, well, we're ruled. We can't do this because the court said so. Vote for us so we can change the court. So it is the problem, I mean, should should we should we try to change the courts or should we focus on other problems in our politics? I mean, is the, is the over-reliance on the court downstream from from other structural problems, or is or is the power of the courts and the structure of the courts a core problem? I think we're going to find that out as we as we experience a judiciary that's a lot more conservative than the rest of the political system. I think that'll be the the test to that question. I think it's they're all part and parcel of the same problem, which is Congress and ultimately the American people not wanting to do politics. All right. So so if you were if 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 you were a president and if you were running for president, were there any? Would you propose reform to the court? Just don't appoint justices. Don't appoint justices, Julia. Oh wow. Um. But 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 make sure it's equally equal number. I mean, sure. I mean, I mean, because then if you have a a, a two one majority, it's still well, and, it's still the court's going to decide. If the court does something that you think is unconstitutional, then ignore the court. I know that sounds That's... crazy. If a district court judge in Hawaii, and I don't look, and whether or not you agree with the underlying issues, if a district court judge in Hawaii says, I'm issuing a nationwide injunction, and the president chooses to comply with that nationwide injunction, that that's on the president. It's not the court's fault. That's the president's fault. And if the president disagrees, and guess what? It's going to go up the ladder pretty quickly, and it'll get to the appellate court. And if they say, no, that should be a nationwide injunction, then it's going to go up even higher. And the Supreme Court weighs in, and then the people get to all weigh in. And if the president says, I'm still going to ignore you, then you're probably acting like a tyrant if they don't like it, and you're going to get thrown out in the next election, and Congress is going to restrict your power. But it's the president's fault in that scenario. It's not the court's fault. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about this question of what what would I do? Um, I'm you know one of the uh, handful of people not running for president in 2020 but it's never too late um it, it will at some point be too late right but i can always <laughs> write your name in. um sure that will be interesting um but um i think that the so i would i would say nominate someone and i'm kind of 
riffing on something Pete Buttigieg has said, which I do not actually agree with, where he's talked about, you know, nominate someone who's not who's above politics. I don't think that's a thing. Um, but I think, you know, nominate someone who is serious about their substantive politics and serious about their their legal reasoning, but also someone who is respectful of the boundary of judges being involved in the kind of symbolic political process, which is something that slipped a lot, I think, recently. And that's, you know, I'm not usually much for norms about staying out of politics, but I do think that it's problematic when when Supreme Court justices and other other judges engage in, you know, partisan political activity in a this in is more reminds way. me of, behind the robes yeah but <laughs> that is, but that i mean lean into being political but be political in a way that's respectful of the sphere reminds me of something that uh late justice scalia once told a gathering in it about it was when repealing the affordable care act or obamacare and congress kept funding it and then they're like please strike it down and he's like well you're funding a law why it's, if you think the law is unconstitutional, don't fund it. Don't look to us to solve this problem. That's the problem. Congress is looking to the courts to do all their dirty work because they don't want to do it because they don't agree on it. So bottom line, uh, has anybody changed their view over the course of this debate? Do we still think the courts are, are doing too much? I think I'm listening to both you and Julia. I think we need to be more articulate about the proper role that courts play and the value uh, of having a healthy and functioning judiciary in our system brings to the table. Like that's, that's an important thing. And I think too often you see when you've the, like the one or two kooky people in the room who complain about judicial supremacy usually don't phrase it in that manner. They don't concede the, the value of the courts. And I think that's, that's probably an important thing we need to do. I think for me, you know, I've been, I, I think I, believe in a role for a constitutional court. But I think that one of the things that we should talk more about is this kind of duality of things like the First Amendment being a limiting factor on legislation versus also the the huge amount of, of movement pressure that's gone into developing legal movements. And like so on the one hand, there's a very overtly and clearly partisan and movement-oriented approach to court politics. Then on the other hand, there is, I think, a legitimate set of constitutional questions. And those things are operating in tandem according to very different institutional logic. So I think what this has done is made me think about the court in a more complicated way, which is probably not what I needed, but that's where I am. That's the, the, the purpose of our show. And, and, and you raise an issue that we didn't really get into, which is the role of social movements. And, at, and I mean, we talked a little bit about the conservative legal movement, but I mean, broadly, a lot of, a lot of folks are, are, have strategies targeted towards the courts and not to Congress. Um, you know, and, and that, you know, I mean, th there, there is a reason for that. And I think, Julia, the point that you brought up about, you know, minority vetoes within our, our governing institutions, preventing policy from happening and the, the courts provide an alternate venue and James your point about like going to courts to seek symbolic uh, attention well they're the ultimate minority veto yeah it's, so, it's ironic it is so so let's 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 end on some irony All right, everybody, it is time for Two Truths and a Lie. I'm Elena Soros. I'm the producer of this podcast. And I'm going to see if I can stump our hosts here who know a lot about these topics and find something that they don't know. 
Um, as we covered in this episode, our courts have the power to weigh in on a huge range of topics. So I am going to read you three different case titles. You tell me which one is the lie. So case one, United States fee approximately 64,695 pounds of shark fins. Case B, United States fee 15 tons of unidentified walkie-talkies. Or we have case C, United States v. 95 barrels more or less alleged apple cider vinegar. Fascinating. I like I like the idea that walkie-talkies can either be identified or not. Like, what? how do walkie-talkies normally identify themselves? Um, shoot. What's, uh, it, de- it depends who's on the other end. What's controversial? Shark fins, I feel like, are, I don't know why, but I feel like they're kind con- I mean, sharks are fierce things. So, I mean, that might end up in a court somehow. The uh, What was the last one? Um, what was the last one? Apple Elena? cider. Oh, Apple cider. cider. That's a real like. Who doesn't yeah. like walkie talkies? But who doesn't like apple cider? I don't know if liking is the operative principle. Yeah, I don't. I don't love apple cider. But so I, I don't love so apple cider. But so so then I don't love walkie talkies either. Okay, so if you don't uh, apple cider vinegar. Apple cider vinegar. Oh, oh I do oh, love apple oh, cider yeah, vinegar. Oh yeah, you gotta put it in your like your healthy shakes, right? Or your like your collagen and you. Oh you know. dear. Oh yeah, I, I, I went through. Yeah, oh. I, I went that Nobody's too. taking apple cider vinegar to court. Nobody. No, I, uh, but you probably take a shark to court. Shark. You see fins, my reasoning here? Um, sure. Shark fins and are like there's a... walkie talkies. I don't know. Okay. Here, here's why this is challenging for me. So shark fins, I know shark fin soup is a big controversial thing, um, right? Yeah. Like there's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of politics around so, shark usage, right? right? Walkie-talkie seems like it might fall under the, F- some of the like, yeah, FCC, or, you know, stuff. yeah. So and there's everybody that. Everybody loves apple cider vinegar. Whereas, right, apple cider vinegar, it's not, this isn't, this is not a hard well, product, right? That could be an right? FDA thing. That's true. I mean, it could be an FDA. Because these could all co- fall oh, under I'm, federal I'm gonna, I, I think the walkie talkies is the lie. I'm going with C. I'll go with B. Well, then I have to go with A because I think we have to no, disagree. You could agree right? with me. No. You agree with me. No. You could go with D, none of the above. D, none of the above. All right. Well, this is two truths and a lie. We, uh, One of them, only one of them is fake. And uh, Lee was right. It is the walkie talkies. So actually, Lee, you were right again. Um, the apple cider vinegar case was a, was related to the Pure Food and Drug Act. It was decided that apple cider vinegar may not be called apple cider vinegar if it's ma- made out of dried apples. It has to be fresh oh. apples because the product quality is not the same. Good to know. Wow. Uh, Nelson Aldrich, a big opponent <laughs> of the FDA. So. And then our, our case about 64,000 pounds of shark fins approximately. This was a- It's like um, three great whites. <laughs> well, this was a Not case that many. from the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit that seized a ship. There was a, a case where a, a ship was found with um, that many shark fins, but no shark carcasses. Uh, yeah, ship was seized, but it was not lawfully seized because it was a fishing vessel. But it's about a, uh, or it was not a fishing vessel, but it's a conservation question that our, our courts weighed in on so fascinating thanks, thanks for playing you everybody every day. thank you thank you thank you for listening to politics in question the show is a joint production of new america and the r street institute and our producers are elena soros shannon lynch and jason stewart theme music was composed by yours truly <laughs>